Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. May, the, may God apply the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. All right, it will require you to be a little bit maybe old, older to remember this, but I don't know if the name Xavier Roberts means anything to anyone. I'll give you the context and you may remember, but uh, uh, 1983, my mom um, was on a mission to purchase a gift for my little sister uh, that was all the rage at the time, and it was a Cabbage Patch doll. So for those that are old enough, you may remember it was ridiculous, the uh, frenzy there was for people to get their hands on a Cabbage Patch doll. And in fact, there was even um, a store in Pennsylvania where four people were hospitalized because of the crowd that was, uh, the mass that was trying to get into the store when they opened to try to get a, a Cabbage Patch doll. And if you've seen these things, if you know them at all, like there's, I mean, this is my opinion, there's nothing special about these dolls, right? They're not particularly intricate. Um, they're just, uh, they're a doll. And, and yet, um, everybody was trying so hard to get these dolls that they're popular enough. Anything that's that popular, that you know there's going to be a market for ones that look very similar. But... It, to know if you got a real Cabbage Patch doll. There was a signature on the left cheek of the doll that said Xavier Roberts. There was a, there was a, a, a signature right there. And that, if you had a Cabbage Patch doll, it was like a, a badge of honor to show that you had that seal because it was a seal of authenticity. You had the real thing. And this passage that we're looking at in Acts chapter 3 is precisely that. The ultimate, the message that comes out of this encounter that takes place with this lame beggar is a seal of authenticity. Now, make no mistake, it is absolutely a miraculous healing. I mean, we saw Jesus throughout the uh, course of his public ministry perform all kinds of healings. And this is no less amazing of a healing. It is um, 
you know, a classic kind of, I suppose you could say, kind of a rags to riches type story. You know, you've got two of Jesus's closest confidants. They're not just disciples. They're not just apostles. These are two of the people within, among the, the apostles that are the closest in relationship to Jesus that are walking in towards the temple, and they have this encounter with this lame beggar, this crippled man who is begging for money, and his disability is so extreme that he can't even get himself there. His, his disability, he's got to be carried to even be put into place to beg. That is a, you are in a bad spot. If you're not only a beggar, if you're not only a cripple, but you have to be moved there by somebody else to even get in the position to beg. And not only that, we learn from this as well that he was lame from birth. He didn't, there was no accident that caused him to become lame. He, this was his lot in life from birth was to be crippled and he had, had little else going for him it would seem than the fact that he could be carried to a place of begging for money. And this healing then, when it takes place, it's so quick, it's so complete that when his ankles become strong, he is walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. So when we look at this, we can say, wow, there's so much to be encouraged by. There's so much to be appreciative of about what God did and demonstrating his mercy through the apostles on this particular man at this particular time so that it had that particular outcome. And that's all wonderful, and we can look at it and appreciate it. But if that's the extent, really, of our reading of that, we aren't even seeing the half of it. I mean, those are good things, but they're not really the most important thing. And in fact, I think what's worse is if that's the way that you look at these things, what could happen is you could develop, even if you don't say that you... Uh, that, that you that you are a proponent of the health and wealth gospel, you can almost create your own little health and wealth theology in your own mind, in your own heart, where you say, well, my goodness, you know, if I do the right things or if God is merciful enough that he'll change my life and that maybe I could get physical healing or maybe my status in the community could change, maybe God will do something for me. And so we build our own little... Uh, doctrine of health and wealth in our own minds by reading things like this and we say, wow, if God did that for him, can't God do that for me? And I would say if you're looking at this from just the, the miracle standpoint all on its own, you're falling quite a bit short. There are much greater implications. And when we study the Bible, what we always want to say or what we, what we want to do when we look at it is not just say, well, what is the content what is being said? We want to ask a little bit bigger questions like, well, why is this being said here? Why is this being said now? Why is this narrative account chronologically taking place in history at this particular time? I mean, there are plenty of healing accounts. Why this one? Why here? Well, when we study the Bible, what you don't have to have is a decoder ring. Interpreting the Bible does not require some sort of a cipher. The Bible is not written as a cryptogram where you have to somehow figure out 
well, what does this mean so that what does that mean so that I can get to the right numbers so that I can get to the right page that, you know, gets me like, like, like uh, Nicolas Cage or something in um, National Treasure. You know, this isn't, this isn't some hunt like that. The way that you know what Scripture is saying is by looking at the wider context of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's, uh, it's very much like if you were a, a, a newer employee at a business, at an organization, and you're wondering, my goodness, why in the world do we, I, I'm required to do this thing, why do I do this? And then you go to the guy who's been at the same company for 40 years, and you go talk to that guy and you say, can you, do you have any, and you're complaining maybe even, why do we have to do this? And he goes, oh, well, let me tell you, because he's been there, right? He's got this, he's got this generational knowledge. He has this institutional knowledge. He says, well, young man, let me tell you why it is that we do this. And hopefully the light goes on. You go, oh, well, actually, that makes sense then, uh, because you have that history of what it is that's taken place. And what happens is when we look at the Bible in its entirety and not just in its uh, the, the 10 verses where it is, and we put it in its context from Genesis to Revelation, and we start to say, okay, well, why does it fit here? What is the purpose for it being in this particular place? We can start to see what God is intending to communicate, and, and that is why I believe Jesus says several times throughout Scripture as well, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like, are you seeing this for really what it is and how it fits into the entirety of Scripture? And so where this fits is, you know, the original didn't have chapter numbers, but for our sake here, where it fits is in the third chapter of Acts, which follows the first two chapter of Acts. And in those first two chapters, which you've already heard me preach through, we see the first things that are happening after this change in redemptive history. Now, I know that's a Christian-y word. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a Bible-y phrase that we use when we say redemptive history, but when I say redemptive history, what I'm saying is that God unfolds history from its earlier time to its later time, and the entire focus of that history that he's unfolding is pointed toward what Christ accomplished in his redemptive work. Everything from beginning, so earlier than Christ, is pointing in some way towards what Christ accomplishes in his life, death, descent, resurrection, ascension, is pointing to that point, and then everything after that is also related to that as well. And so, to that point, in fact, just to, just to kind of illustrate here, to pull from Daniel chapter... Uh, Seven. Uh, there is the prophecy Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen that reads, "I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages." should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So keep that in mind then as we look at the New Testament passage as well which comes out of Ephesians 1 verses 20 to 23 and this is what's there. 
back it up just a little bit. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all the things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the point I'm making with that in reading that language out of Daniel 7 and that giving of dominion, and then the Ephesians 1 of the rule and authority and power and dominion, is it's done. That redemptive work in Christ has been accomplished. What Daniel was looking forward to and what Paul in Ephesians is writing about is looking back in what was accomplished by Christ. And if you remember from what I just read out of the Daniel 7 passage, it added in there, in addition to the power and the dominion, was the languages, and we looked at the impact or the the implications of that in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Remember that it resulted in all people, nations, and languages being gathered, and then it went on to be at Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you all that to say that is that institutional knowledge. That's that, that's that generational knowledge. That's what we carry to the text when we look at the entirety of Scripture, and we then come to this in chapter 3, and we say, okay, in the unfolding of redemptive history, and if we say that the crease of that unfolding is what Christ accomplished in his work on the cross, then what is left of the crease is what took place in the Old Testament, and what is right of the crease is what has unfolded going forward. And this is what is taking place in this new or this inaugurated kingdom. It's on the right side of that crease. So what was defined as a, in, on the left side of that crease as a series of kings uh, and one ethnicity in the Jews and a geographical promised land that actually had boundaries has been redefined into the kingship of just one. He was a descendant of the old, but in 1 Timothy 6, it says, He is the blessed one, or He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is over a redefined race, which in 1 Peter 2 says, A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And then, of course, he's taken possession. That land that he's taken possession of is also redefined. It's not the nearly 300,000 miles of land that borders the Mediterranean. Matthew 28 says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, again, I'm giving this background, that generational knowledge, that uh, scriptural knowledge that we want to make sure that we carry into this. Left side of the crease, kings, one ethnicity, a defined bordered land, right side of the crease. Now we have one ultimate king in Jesus Christ. We have a chosen race that is to go into all the nation. So with that picture in in mind, if we were to pick a symbol 
of everything that's on the left side of the crease, all things Old Testament that pointed forward to Christ. If we had to choose one symbol that just encapsulated the entire thing, all 39 books of the Old Testament and the laws and meeting with God and worship and everything, if we were just going to choose one thing that would just represent that, what would it be? It would be the temple. That's what was central to the Jewish religion. You know how, I mean, there's temple imagery in the garden, and then they go around uh, with the tent of meeting, uh, with the tabernacle, then eventually uh, Solomon's temple, and then the second temple. I mean, this temple is what is center to the entirety of what the Jews believe on that left side of the crease that represents what it is that's coming forward. And we know that if you go back and you look at all the details about the temple itself, it's intricately and intentionally detailed. You can look at all those things and see the three divisions, the outer court, the holy place, the holy of holies, and what that represents. You can look at the way that it had decor that reflected the garden uh, and rivers and mountains and everything. You can look at the contents of the temple and, um, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim and the mercy seat and all the things that that entails. And then you can also um, uh, look at the way that all of it was built and where it was placed and every aspect that you look at the temple essentially communicates something about what God is planning to do at that, what I'm calling at that crease. And the point is, if that thing it is as exquisite and intricately and intentionally detailed as it is, is a symbol of something, then when the something comes, the symbol is no longer necessary. All of that that's pointing to a future thing, when the future thing has come, the, the thing that's pointing, the sign, the symbol, is no longer necessary. Now, the writers of the Bible, you know, they do these literary things that help us see what is being communicated. So I just want to point out that addressing this temple issue and what is it that these Jews are going to do or these new believers, these Christians are going to do with the temple. They've lived, think about that, thousands of years pointing toward that crease, that redemptive, that point of history that's in the middle, and they're the ones living with all that background that's supposed to be pointing forward, and they find themselves looking at face-to-face with that time, and now they're on the other side of it. What do you do with the temple and its leadership and the system and all of those things? And that is where we are, and we see that, because, and those of you that have been around know this, that these guys write in a particular way. So it's actually the entirety of Acts chapter 3 through 5 that just deals with temple stuff. And in fact, at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says, And day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And so this is where, and then, and then the next account where we are today, starting in chapter 3, we have Peter and John walking up to the temple. Well, I'm going to skip all the way to the very last verse of chapter 5 and notice the similarity to that verse I just read at the end of 2. Very last verse of chapter 5, which is verse... 42 says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching 
that the Christ is Jesus. So you see the, the book ends there. This is all about the temple. It's like, all right, they've been empowered with the Holy Spirit. They're the apostles. They're the foundation of the church. Christ has already ascended. They're going out. Their first order of business is to deal with the temple stuff. That's, they're like, well, we got to do something. I mean, this is my version. <laughs> Pete's paraphrase. Uh, we got to do something about this temple because this is, this is what everybody's looking to. This is what they've been brought up to look to. It's been there for millennia um, as the focal point of the Jewish religion looking toward what would be the Messiah, and the Messiah has now come, and so here they are. Now, if chapters 3 through 5 are their experiences with dealing with the temple, we narrow this down then to our 10 verses, and I just want you to see here a little repetition. So in chapter 3 in verse 1, notice it says, Peter and John were going up to the temple. Verse 2, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And then we go to verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple. And then the healing uh, account takes place between verses 4 and 7. Then you get down to verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple. Go on down, down. Uh, to, to uh, verse 9, and all the people saw him walking, praising God, recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And it is the habit of Hebrew authors, of Jewish authors, to use repetition. And this helps draw our eye in a literary way. Like I said, being able to interpret the Bible doesn't require a decoder ring, it requires familiarity. And so this is what they do. And so when we look at this account, we go, okay, we have this amazing, miraculous healing of this lame man. Praise God that he has that dramatic change in physical condition and dramatic improvement in his social, you know, social standing now of not being a, a beggar. But we have something else going on, and it is directly tied to the temple and the temple is the symbol of all things left side of the crease, pointing toward what it is that Christ is going to accomplish. So with that all in mind, now you can read this thing and say, okay, the Old Testament ceremonial law had a sacrificial system, right? They required the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and lambs and, and all of that. All of that was the left side of the crease, and, as, and part of the rules, part of the regulations associated with bringing those animals is that none of them were allowed to be used if they had any kind of infirmity, if they had any kind of a blemish, if they were lame in any way. And in fact, you couldn't have a, uh, a priest serve if he, had, if he was lame in any particular way. So, if the temple is and represents a particular place where God meets in a special way with his particular people, you have a man that is unfit to enter the temple because he is lame and because he is crippled, and you have these apostles who are freshly armed with the Holy Spirit, and they have this exchange with this crippled beggar outside of the temple. Now, I do want to just mention, because I don't know if this thought came to you, well, 
there's no need for the temple, then why are the apostles going to the temple? Well, they're going there because that's where the people are. They're going there. That's the hour of prayer. So people are going to be there. And during the hour of prayer, uh, it was typical for people to bring these sacrificial animals. You'll notice they're not bringing sacrifices or anything. They're going there to preach and to teach. And in this amazing way, this is part of the beauty of Scripture, is you see the whole purpose of them going to the temple is to preach the gospel truth that has already taken place. People are coming to the temple to worship God, and they're showing up to say, basically, this has been fulfilled. I'm here to tell you the gospel. And on their way, we see in this encounter a physical demonstration of what it is that the gospel does. That's what's happening. That's the meaning of what's taking place. This man was judged to be unworthy to enter the temple. He was incapable of being in that place physically that was supposed to be a place in which God met in a special way with his people. And in God's mercy and through his power using these apostles, he healed this man. His ankles were made strong. He stood up. He was walking and leaping and praising God, and then what did he do? He entered the temple. You'll notice the lame beggar here. He didn't clean himself up. He didn't pick himself up by his bootstraps. He had absolutely nothing to offer. And yet he received this gift. And we see at the same time that these barriers are removed from him going into the temple is that he is made whole. His anything that prevented him from true worship of God had been removed and he was made whole. He went from unclean to clean. He went from unholy to holy. He went from reprobate to honorable. He went from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. This is the message of this encounter and this account. This is a physical demonstration of the truth of what Christ accomplished. They just happen to be barely on the other side of it, and they're going to the temple to do that. This is essentially the first documented miracle, the first documented exchange after we have the apostles uh, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. The healing was a demonstration that that future hope, that that left side of the crease that they just hoped for sometime. This was a physical demonstration that 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 future hope had become a better and present reality. In fact, um, this was, in a way, prophesied from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, where it says, talking about that day, whenever it is that that's going to happen, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf 
unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so what we see here in the complexity and the, um, uh, the layers that God communicates in, in Scripture and through his prophets, we have, oh, so that means people are going to be in a better state, right? Like they're going to be in a physically better state, or is this all theological and, sim- and symbolic? And, and, and the answer is yes to both. We see in this healing account the fact that Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled in a physical way with this particular man, but even the physical was only pointing to something that was a greater truth, which is the fact that he once was unfit and unworthy to be in the presence of God in the temple, and he was made fit. He was made worthy to be in the presence of God. And this account then serves as a seal of authenticity of what Messiah had accomplished. It is, an authentic, it is a seal of authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why when we look at all of these things that are going on that we, we've already examined in Acts chapters 1 and 2, and we looked at all the background, and we looked at the Tower of Babel, and we went back to Genesis, and we were looking at all these things and what Jesus promised during his earthly ministry and all these really big theological things that were, that were coming to fulfillment in Acts 1 and 2. And then we just, it like touches reality in Acts chapter 3 when we see them walk up to a guy and they say, well, we don't have any silver or gold, but let me tell you what I have. They have the gospel truth. And in healing him, it demonstrated that, the, that this man could be made worthy to be in the presence of God. So this means then that for the unbeliever, for those that are not Christians, you are the cripple. You're still sitting out there and unfit to be in the presence of God. There is no there's nothing you can possibly do to pick yourselves up by your bootstraps. You can't clean yourself up enough. There aren't enough good works. You can't give enough money. You can't donate enough of your personal time to service of others to be made worthy of being in God's presence. As PJ mentioned earlier, we serve a God that is holy, holy, holy. He is without stain, and he is a just God which means he doesn't ignore sin. He could not, but sin can be atoned for just like this man. It can be taken away by God. You cannot, an unbeliever cannot choose to walk, cannot choose to be pure or righteous or to enter heaven any more than this man could have said, you know what, I think today I'm going to start walking. It's just not a possibility. But praise God, just like this man, there is an opportunity to receive the gift of forgiveness that makes us whole and allows us to be in the presence of God and to worship him in spirit and in truth. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, I I want to tell you two things from this account here. I want to point out two things. 
One of them is an encouragement, and another is an admonition. The first is the encouragement, and I want to remind you, if you haven't already thought of it, is that you were the cripple, right? That was you. You were incapable. You didn't choose one day to to stand up and, and walk on your own. That was a gift that was granted to you, and you recognize that any righteousness you had is filthy rags. That's what Scripture says. We bring nothing to the table. This isn't a, hey, you're drowning, grab the... You have nothing. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And so I want to turn here um, to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you'd be willing, please take your Bibles. I I want you to see this for yourself. Ephesians 1, and we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. It says, In him, of course, in Christ, in him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you understand the importance of the seal of authenticity? There are no Fake. There are no posers that are going to make it in. It doesn't work that way. Remember the parable of the man that entered the wedding without a garment? He was thrown out, thrown into the fire. And in the same way, though, you can know that you have the seal, because it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And if that isn't enough, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You are guaranteed to maintain that seal all the way until you acquire the gift in its fullness. That's the encouragement. And then as to the admonishment, you know, think for a second, would this account from Acts 3 even be in the Bible if the apostles said nothing to him, or if the apostles gave him money. <laughs> oh, okay, you need some money? Here you go. Let me, let me give you some, some money. It isn't. You live in a world filled with crippled people and people blind to the truth. You know this. This is the world we live in. You bear the seal of authenticity. Now let's go back to the exact same two verses I just read out of Ephesians 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, it's then that you get that promise there of you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we uh, acquire it. So it's important that you remember that you heard the truth and that you believed and that you were sealed. Do not withhold that word of truth from others. Much more important than giving somebody, you know, silver and gold, giving them money, or, put, or, or somehow giving them something that improves their physical status, 
or giving them something that improves their social status. You know, someone comes to you and says, wow, you know, you, it seems like you have a really good marriage. Wow, you know, I, I watch the way you, you're an honest person. You have an opportunity there to give them something that will improve their social status. And you give them the three tips that you live by, some little um, series of, uh, uh, some motto that you live by. You know, well, I just try to treat others like I want to be treated. Well, that's biblical, right? Well, yeah. And that might improve their life in some way. But the fact of the matter is that you were sealed because you heard the truth of the gospel of your salvation, and then you believed. And so it is your responsibility, and this is the admonition, that when you are in a world and walking past in these encounters that God gives you with blind and lame un, people unfit to be in the presence of God, that you share the truth of the gospel. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, let me tell you what I have. I have the truth of the gospel. And then it's God's responsibility. It's on the Holy Spirit to do with that whatever he sees fit. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have seen fit to put someone in our lives that proclaimed the word of truth, that there is salvation in one place only through Jesus Christ that we too could recognize that we need to repent of our sin and place our faith in the one and only Savior, the one who accomplished redemption, that can atone, that has atoned for our sins, for those that repent and that love him in that crease in the unfolding of history. Thank you for what took place then. Thank you for this account uh, this exchange between Peter and John with this lame man so that we too can be encouraged that that once was us and isn't any longer and that we're sealed and have the promise of the Holy Spirit until the day that we acquire the gift in its, in its entirety and also that we can receive the encouragement to speak to others of the gospel truth. Give us those opportunities, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.